Black Warriors, Tansei Sego, Ani Buju, Quay Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And there's been a lot going on in 2020. From dealing with ongoing state-based genocide and defending our lands and waters from governments and the extractive industry, to dealing with the widespread and violent police racism against Indigenous peoples and the COVID-19 pandemic. That's a lot of pressure being put on our sovereign nations right now with very significant risks and impacts to our children, our families, our communities, our clans, houses, and nations. During really heavy times like this, where so much of our energy is put into protecting our peoples, defending our lands, and advocating for our rights, there are times when we need to take breaks, even small ones, to recharge. And one of the ways that I like to do that is by reading books written by Native authors. And it's one of the reasons why I started my book club on YouTube. And one of the books that I reviewed on YouTube was called Whose Land Is It Anyway? A Manual for Decolonization, published by the Federation of Post-Secondary Educators in BC in 2017. This book was done in honor of the late Arthur Manuel, and was edited by Peter McFarlane and Arthur's life partner, Nicole Shabbos. What's great about this book is that it is free. You can download it online as a PDF or an ebook, and I'll make sure to leave a link to the book in the description box, or you can Google whose land is it anyway, and you should be able to find it easy enough. Another great thing about this book is that it's super accessible. It's only 14 short chapters, each written by a different author, and they are organized into three main themes. The machinery of colonialism, acts of resurgence, and the path to reconciliation. This is the kind of book that can literally be read in an afternoon, and what makes it even more accessible is that they have now produced it into an audiobook. Many of the chapters are read by the actual authors, some of whom include longtime Native activists like Taegi Alfred, who's a Mohawk scholar, Russ Diabo, who's a Mohawk policy analyst, and Bev Jacobs, another Mohawk scholar and professor. And while the book sounds very Mohawk heavy, there are a list of other Native activists who are included as authors in the book as well. Another great thing about this book is that it's not just dedicated to Arthur, but it actually contains some of his writings as well. And it also includes some writings from his daughter, Kanahus Manuel, who is a frontline warrior for Tiny House Warriors. There's also so many other authors, so make sure you download the book and read it or listen to the audio version online. And I'll leave a link to that information as well. So today's podcast is actually going to be a bit of an intro to the audiobook set within the context of an interview I did with Nooksock Radio 91.1 FM in Bella Coola about the chapter I contributed to the book. So here we go. Yaus Madam Cooks Instaquachs to Tunidu Chapanus Sinam Nap Osh Nuchok Radio. And we have with us a very special guest here on air with us, Pamela Palmeter. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Hi, thank you so much. 
Well, it is an honor and a privilege to spend time with you here on New Hulk Radio, and, and I know you're extremely busy, and I hold my hands up to you for taking the time with us here today. We played a little intro, a biography of you, but it's always best, I think, to hear from you, who you are, where you're from, and, and what it is you do. Sure. Uh, I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation, an unceded Mi'kmaq territory, and I'm a member of Eel River Bar First Nation. I am a lawyer and a professor at Ryerson University. I'm the chair in Indigenous Governance, but um, more importantly, I'm a mom. I have two sons. They're grown now. I still call them kids, but, you know, that's what it is. And I come from a giant family. I have eight sisters and three brothers, and they're effectively the ones who raised me to be how I am because they were very political, very radical, on-the-ground kind of activists. So that was kind of my upbringing. <laughs> right on, right on. Can you explain a little bit about this book, Whose Land Is It Anyway, and your involvement and maybe who this book might be for? Yeah, so this book, uh, a manual for decolonization, you know, it's called Whose Land Is It Anyway? Um, it was edited by Peter McFarlane and Nicole Shabas, and it's really in honor of the late Arthur Manuel, who is known all over Turtle Island and internationally amongst Indigenous peoples as a staunch advocate and activist and, you know, on-the-ground warrior for Native rights, you know, or Native land or Native sovereignty, and, you know, we just, it was such a loss um, to lose him because we all worked with him in, in different ways, and so his his partner, Nicole, um, and his one of his lifelong friends, Peter McFarlane, had this idea that we could all contribute to a book that would be open access, so available to everyone, you didn't have to buy, and we would each write, you know, a little tiny piece, not like an academic book, but a little tiny piece on some issue that Art would have worked on you know, throughout his life. And so there's like some amazing people in there like um, Mohawk Taegi Alfred. There's a piece from Arthur Manuel, you know, Mohawk Russ Diabo and um, Kanahus Manuel, who is another one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I was lucky to include a chapter two. Mine's in the last part. It's really about how we as people need to take back our power. Right on, right on. Now I want to jump into into your chapter a bit. We we spoke with Diaki Alfred and Russ Diabo about their sections. The book starts out with Diaki's uh, essay. It's all about the mm -hmm. land, and it wraps up with your chapter. Decolonization is taking back our power. And I have here some audio clips I'd like to share with our listeners, and, and maybe get some feedback from you. So I'll play this here for you now. Indigenous nations on Turtle Island what is now referred to as Canada, the United States, and Mexico, have experienced some of the most prolonged and violent genocidal acts in the world's history. So how have so-called Canada and the so-called U.S. of A. managed to bury the reality of the genocide of Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island? Well, very easily. I mean, they were the ones who were holding the pen, literally. They're the ones writing the history books. They're the ones doing the education. They're the ones writing the laws. They were the ones in control of the media. They literally controlled the message, which made it for a while easier for them to erase us. And while at the same time to continue on with these horrendous 
violent acts of genocide, which still continue today. And so because of that power that they used to have, um, they were able to kind of keep everything quiet and and not well known and um, there was also a certain amount of self-interest so Canada wasn't going to point out what the United States was doing with regards to Native Americans because Canada was doing the same thing to First Nations and you can see that all around the world Australia is not going to say hey Canada what are you doing nor was New Zealand because they had a vested interest in the lands and resources they had stolen from their indigenous populations and not calling each other out. Um, I think a lot of that has changed, and I think that change hasn't come from government. It's come from our own people and the power of our voices, even at a time when we didn't have control over the media. And now where there's social media, we have so much more power, so much more ability to use our voices, which have always been really powerful. Now it's just amplified. I think that's a really important point you mentioned there, that it's, this isn't historical per se. This is ongoing. And that mm-hmm. ties into this little next clip I have of yours. <laughs> just get over it. I'll play this here for you, and I have a question for you. There is an urgent political desire for Indigenous peoples to, quote, just get over it. Despite the fact that colonization continues in equally lethal ways. So we can't really get over something that is ongoing, but how might we spread the understanding that our human rights have continually and still are being violated by so-called Canada? Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's it's to really challenge that every time because think about the strategies that Canada uses. They um, engage in litigation settlements where they have, oh, we're sorry for residential schools, here's a payment, let's move on. Oh, we're sorry for the 60s scoop, here's a payment, let's move on. Oh, we're sorry for the Inuit relocations, here's a payment, let's move on. As if all we're doing is looking backwards, like at a sad chapter in our past, as opposed to looking at what are they doing right now. They're doing all the same things that, that they did in residential schools. They're still teaching French and English and European history, and they're still mandating provincial curriculums, and they're still stealing our children at rates higher than residential schools, and our ch- children are still being abused in uh, many cases in foster care, and their life chances are reduced. So we need to push them on it. Okay, maybe they did have a settlement for residential schools, but they haven't never stopped what they're doing. And so we need to just keep after them. And I think, you know, the way we do that by exercising our voices helps educate Canadians, which turns them into significant and powerful allies, uh, you know, to stand with us to push governments to take action. Because as we all know, governments don't give us anything and they don't volunteer any surrender and power. We have to take it. Right, it's up to us. And and we here in Newhawk Territory, we're doing our best to get our voices heard. That's an extremely challenging thing to do, considering that, you know, these struggles are continually put on us. You know, that this genocide mm-hmm. continues, in my opinion. It's, it's not the past, it's current. And, mm-hmm. you know, I want to touch on one of your your uh, statements in your essay about creating conditions of life that bring about our destruction. And I have a, a local example to share with you. I'd like to get your thoughts. So I'll play Mm -hmm. this here clip for our listeners. Certainly, it is arguable that the federal government's programs and policies create the conditions of life that lead to the premature deaths of Indigenous peoples and, as such, could be considered a modern-day elimination policy. 
Now, on that, we have here an ancestral government that, that is still in place and just recently put out a statement to Canada. I'd like to jump into it, so I won't read the whole thing for you, but there's a section here. It says, to the government of Canada with a carbon copy to the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Quote, you are stealing food from our people. We haven't enough salmon to feed ourselves and fear we will have to stop our own food fishery for the protection, conservation and survival of our salmon relatives. Through your authorization of the commercial extraction of our food, you are willingly, knowingly and deliberately inflicting on our people conditions of life that will ultimately bring about our physical destruction. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's exactly what it is, and that's that's one of the criteria of genocide. So a lot of people don't understand what the legal definition is or what international law is around genocide. It's not just the killing of people. That's true. It's also physical and mental harm to people, to a particular group. It's also creating the conditions of life meant to bring about the destruction of the group in whole or in part. So it doesn't mean you have to wipe them all out, but it can be destroying the group. Um, like this letter is saying, but it's also the physical transfer of children uh, out of our communities, and it's also forced sterilizations and things like that. So what, what we're talking about here is genocide, and it's done in a very intentional way. And what's really interesting is that when I wrote this article, that was before the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls released their report, which found Canada guilty of genocide, and not just on one of those criteria – all of those criteria. So basically what's in that letter is talking about the genocide of a people knowingly. And I might add that even according to Canada's own laws, that's unconstitutional because the Sparrow case says that the number one priority in fisheries, number one, is the Indian food fishery over everything else, including commercial fishery. So that gets priority. And they even use the example of the Supreme Court of Canada saying that if there's only enough fish left for the Indian food fishery, then nobody else gets to take any. So, I mean, they have every law. They have their own law, their own traditional law. They have Canada's constitutional law, and they have international law backing them in this. So I want to touch a little bit on international law. I think that might be an avenue that we as a people might have to look at more in detail. We've been kind of stuck muddling around with B.C. and Canada. don't like using those terms, but you know that's the reality of what we're dealing with. How can we hold so-called Canada accountable for the genocide you know, at an international level? Well, that's what we have been trying to do. So we have been for decades, and, you know, just like the late Arthur Manuel was too, using these international forums to put political pressure on Canada, to put legal pressure on Canada, to change what it's doing. Sometimes our interventions at the UN have direct legal consequences here in Canada. So, for example, when um, Sandra Lovelace, who's now Senator Sandra Lovelace-Nicholas, um, took Canada before the United Nations Human Rights Committee for sex discrimination in the Indian Act, she won. That, that forced Canada to have to change the Indian Act. But in other instances, our advocacy around Canada not getting a seat at the United Nations Security Council because of ongoing genocide, because of their breach of Indigenous rights and land rights, and because of police violence and all of the things that they do to us, Canada didn't get that seat. So we're able to hurt Canada where it hurts on a whole variety of forums 
Um, and I think that that's useful. The other way in which it's useful is that whatever recommendations come out of the various human rights treaty bodies at the United Nations or the Inter-American Commission, for example, we can use them in courts here in Canada. So even though some of those laws might not be adopted in Canada, applicable to Canada because Canada ratified those treaties and agreed to be bound by them. So we can bring them here to court and use them as very persuasive arguments, and they're starting to be adopted more and more. So, I mean, Art Manual was always saying we need to use the international forum, we need to get the word out and, and hit Canada where it hurts until they come to the table in a real fair way. Now, I know Arthur Manuel had some interesting tactics, including using an economic approach. So is that something that we can look at, is hitting them you know, on their credit rating and that sort of thing, just hit them in all sorts of different ways as possible? You know what? I think it's to do everything. Sometimes we get stuck on what's the best way. Is it negotiation? Is it litigation? Is it economics? And I kind of like, you know, Dr. Cindy Blackstock's motto. She does, you know, mosquito advocacy, which is essentially hit them everywhere in all directions, in all forums until we get the successes that we need. And I, and I just think we, we need to keep doing that as hard as it is. And as much resources and energy it takes from us, we do get success out of it. I want to uh, touch on your your legal background a little bit, if I could, and play another mm-hmm. clip here for you, and then I have a question for you. Okay. While some might argue that Canadian law protects Indigenous rights, their non-Indigenous lawyers, judges, and police forces ensure that Canadian sovereignty is supreme and that any rights we have are subservient to those of the colonial regimes. Now, what are your thoughts on justifiable infringement? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't think there is a such thing as a justifiable infringement unless it's literally saving someone's life. Um, that's just weasel words that are used to allow the governments to continue to do what they've always done. They just have to do it at a slower pace and give us information about it and possibly compensate us, and that's not good enough. I mean, if you look at the way Section 35 Aboriginal rights have been defined in the Supreme Court of Canada, one, they always presume Canada has sovereignty. Two, they always... Rights are always subjected to being justifiably infringed, and how can you justifiably infringe that? Well, they said a valid legislative objective. Well, in Sparrow, the first case, the only thing that could trump an Indian food fishery was conservation. And that would be something that would be consistent with Native laws anyway. No Native nation that I know of would ever want to fish a fish to extinction, for example. But as the cases go on from Sparrow and you get to Delgamuk, then the kinds of things, and don't forget in Delgamuk that you're also talking about land as opposed to, a, you know, fishing, a practice. So once you start talking about land, and that's where, you know, governments and courts get really antsy because they don't want us to be able to question uh, land ownership. When it comes to land, Delgamuk, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in Delgamuk says, oh, things like mining and hydroelectric activity and um, commercial activities, historical use, even settlement is enough to justify the infringement of Aboriginal title. And to me, that's just completely unacceptable. That's literally the antithesis 
of Aboriginal title. Either we own it or we don't. And if we do, then you can't use everything under the sun to justifiably infringe that. And I think, you know, the Chilcotin case has, has brought Aboriginal title even further, but I think what makes it more impactful is not the decisions themselves, because there's lots of problems with the decisions. It's what we do with it. It's when we, you know, make sure that we're using our own laws and our own governing systems and protecting our territories, even in the face of the RCMP, even in the face of conflict with federal and provincial governments. It's only by, you know, really asserting our sovereignty and living it and defending it that, you know, we have any rights at all. I would definitely wouldn't rely on the Canadian legal system or court cases. Right on. And uh, in your in your essay or section of the book, you talk about real decolonization is about the return of power and wealth back to Indigenous mm-hmm. peoples. I'd like to just play that clip here for our listeners, and I have a question for you. Canada works very hard to get in the way of real decolonization, as that would mean a substantive shift in power and wealth back to Indigenous peoples. Now, how might... We get support from our non-Indigenous guests living on our lands. Well, I think we already do have support from many of of these uh, Canadians as allies. Um, that's been something that's had to develop over time. It's taken a lot of public education. It has taken a lot of work behind the scenes, like solidarity action between groups. So, for example, I, I think since Idle No More, um, where Canadians came out in droves, like by the thousands, to support us because when we were you know, protesting against Bill C-45 and some of the other legislative measures being imposed by Harper that hurt Native rights, they also violated, you know, Canadian civil rights and, and liberties and freedoms too. So by standing with us, they're standing up for themselves and their rights. And I think the more Canadians can understand that in defending our rights, they're also making their world a better place because it's a very slippery slope. If it's okay for police to brutalize and kill Native people, well, then it's okay for them to do it to black people, and then it's okay for them to do it to other people, and then it's okay for them to do it to women, and it just keeps going until states have absolute uh, power and authority, and we can't let them do that. The only check on governments in any country around the world are the people, and that's why we have mobilized, we have to get them empowered with this information and realize that what it means to be a government isn't looking at someone who is sitting in parliament. It's actually what is it that you're doing? The citizens are in fact the government. And if any citizen in Canada thinks that by voting in an election they've done their civic duty, well, that's the least amount that they could do. Actually, there's a thousand more powerful things they could do than vote in this country. And one of them is standing, like literally standing with Indigenous peoples and taking action to protect our human rights, um, all of our environmental rights, protect to make sure that people are safe, all of our liberties are protected, and that the planet is going to be here in another hundred years. That's beautiful. Yeah, we all need to stand together for, for the common goal of humanity in general as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in your essay, you, you talk about balancing resistance and resurgence. Now, what might be some examples of resistance and resurgence? 
Well, you know, I, I put that in there almost like a reminder to myself because I spent my entire life resisting, resisting, resisting. And then along the way, it's like, but you know what? I've got to save some energy because look at these people over there that are revitalizing the cultures, the ceremonies, the languages, the practices to try to save it and revive it. And look at these one, people over here who are trying to rebuild their nations and, you know, enact new and old laws and assert their sovereignty. And, that, you know, it really hit me. We can't just be always resisting assimilation, elimination, resisting oppression, resisting incursion to our territories. That's important because if, if we let up on that even for a second, then, you know, governments will pave us over. But But at the same time, it's important that while some of us are engaged in the resistance, we have to put an equal amount of energy and resources into those that are engaged in the resurgence and the revitalization of our culture and languages and spirituality, the things that make us who we are, the things that help us get through all of this. If I, if I didn't have my ceremonies, if I, if I wasn't able to travel from community to community, you know, during powwow season and reconnect with family and friends, it would, it would be a very difficult battle to be engaged in. And and so that's why I think we just have to remember that, you know, not all of us can do everything. It's okay if some of us are at the, you know, language revitalization part. You know, there's other people who are going to be the land defenders, and there's other people who are going to be the moms raising their kids to be happy and healthy so that they can be warriors someday. Like, we all have a different role, but we have to recognize that everybody's engaged in it in a different way and make sure that we're dedicating, you know, enough attention and resources to the revitalization part, too. Yeah, that's so important for everyone to, to keep in mind that each and every one of us is so vitally important in the overall yeah. picture. We each have different skills and gifts to share and to bring forward. And like you said, it's, it's a mother raising her child is so important mm-hmm. just as it is for someone to go and stand in the way of something that's threatening our livelihood. There's so many different things that need to be done. We have so few peoples. We here in Newhawk, we are survivors of genocide. Uh, like the literal killing of our people intentionally in 1862 all the way through everything we've experienced since then and it's ongoing. And I, I just want to touch on one last audio clip from your section then I have a, a question for you. Mm-hmm. Our people have survived everything Canada has done to us. Our ancestors are walking beside us as we revitalize our cultures and identities. Decolonization is about realizing that we have power to take back what is rightfully ours and ensure a future for our future generations. So we have the power. Now, how do we harness this power to move in a good direction? Well, that's the difficult part, isn't it? <laughs> because it's, it sounds, you know, great. It sounds like an inspiring sentence to say, and then we need, we come to our communities and say, oh my goodness, we are still in many ways, in many of our First Nations, um, suffering from intergenerational trauma. We have uh, lots of health issues. We have mental health issues. Um, there's some of our First Nations are very, very impoverished, and some we have very high suicide rates. 
Uh, we know that our treaties are being breached, our Aboriginal rights are being breached, they're constantly cutting our funding and our ability to, you know, engage in these really important acts of, of governance. But uh, I have no easy answer except that we need to keep in mind the light that is the sovereignty of our people and the sovereignty of our nations and to remember that no matter what things are like in our particular nation. So maybe we have the worst chief in the world or maybe there's people on council who stole money or maybe the people who are working at the, you know, health center are the ones who bullied you when you were a kid. We have to know that Despite all of these struggles that we have, our nations are bigger than all of that. They're bigger than any one chief, any one council, any one leader, any one next-door neighbor, any difficult any difficulties that we have, and realize that our collective future and our individual futures depend on us holding that light of our nations. You know, always remembering that this is about the sovereignty and the power and the beauty that's in our nations. And and we're so lucky because, you know, only people from the Mi'kmaq Nation get to be Mi'kmaq and only people from the Haida Nation get to, you know, be Haida. These are unique, one-of-a-kind experiences that we were blessed with. And, you know, that's a light that we work towards. Sometimes we're going to be in a situation where, you know, maybe we're too overwhelmed. Maybe we have, we're single parents and we're raising a whole bunch of young kids right now and that has to take our priority and we can't focus on governing issues. But we need to celebrate that we're actually raising these babies who are part of our nations, who will be warriors for our nations someday and that that is, that is heroic work. It might not get all the media attention that a chief does or that a famous person does or that a media commentator does, but that doesn't make it any less important. In fact, I think the way we raise our children is the most important thing we can do for the future of our nations. Beautiful. Now, I'd, I'd like to step away from the book for a moment. I have a question here on our local situation here in Nuchalk. Now, we here we have no treaty. This is sovereign, unceded, untreated, unrelinquished territory. And we have our ancestral government, which is still... In existence, it is healing and it is relearning, but we also have our Indian Act elections. But we seem to be in a, a really unique situation here where our ancestral leadership and the elected leadership are working together with our elected mm -hmm. leaders supporting our ancestral government. Your thoughts on this and perhaps any cautions for us as we move forward? Well, I think that's that's amazing. I mean, as I come from the Mi'kmaq Nation, which is comprised of a whole bunch of different First Nations, but our traditional government operates alongside our chiefs and councils, and they do their best to work out who has what jurisdiction to try to work together on issues. They won't always agree, but they're trying, because here's the thing. We need to forgive ourselves for being colonized. Everybody's colonized. It doesn't matter if you went to school and got a degree in decolonization. You're still colonized, and we, it's not our fault what's happened to us and it's not our fault where we are and it's not our fault that Canada has created a situation where if we try not to have a chief and council or we reject them in any way they put our first nation in third party management and start controlling our lives that you know there's very political legal 
and economic realities that we're trying to deal with right now. So it's about just kind of how do we transition? I mean, eventually, I think we'll be able to make all of that stuff, all of the Indian Act, all of the, you know, the colonial stuff irrelevant without having to take um, drastic measures. And the fact that your traditional government is working alongside your the Indian Act government is the way that we do that in the sense that we're preserving it. We're not choosing one or the other. We're not vilifying one or the other. You, we can have everything you want to. And because we have to deal with the situation that has been forced upon us, the fact that any of our traditional governments have survived in any way is a strength and a testimony to who we are as a people. And I think we just need to focus on that positivity, and we will eventually transition into what it is that we want at the end of the day. Beautiful. Oh. Starting to wind down our time here together, and for myself personally, I do my best to, when I look forward in space-time, I, I see if I can perceive as many plausible realities as I can, from the most dire to the most optimistic. Now, what might be your most optimistic reality you can see moving forward? I'm glad you asked that question, because I... See alternatives, I see only one, and, and we will be successful. And you know how I know? Because I just look back in history and say, we've already succeeded. We defeated them. They wipe us off the face of Turtle Island, and they did not succeed. Our people refused. They tried to make it so that we forgot about all of our languages and cultures and what it means to be a collective. And we haven't. We're struggling. We have lots of difficulties. We're still facing genocide. But if we can survive all of that, then the future only gets better from here because our kids are getting stronger. They know about our history. They're getting educated in our traditional ways. They're learning about all the different ways to resist and resurge. And I know for a fact we're going to win at the end of the day, that we are going to be able to save this planet, and we will be the sovereign nation standing here at the end of the day making sure that happens. Yeah, that won't be easy. There's a lot of hard work ahead of us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that kind of brings me to my uh, final question for you here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a very busy human. You carry so many different paddles. Now, how do you keep yourself grounded? Oh, my goodness. I get up in the morning and I go run because it exhausts my body, it takes all the anxiety out of my body, all the stress, all the tensing. But the other thing it does, because I'm lucky enough to live by a lake, is when I'm running in the morning by the lake, it's it's like this happy place for me. It may sound cheesy, but when you breathe like the fresh air and you smell the water and you hear the birds and you're running you know, in the trees and in the dirt path, it's just... It reminds me to be thankful for the very basics, you know, that we have air to breathe, that the sun is nourishing all of creation, that the trees not only provide shelter and food, but they're acting as the earth's, you know, lungs, and the earth and all the plants and animals and birds and insects. And, I mean, it's just a daily reminder for me to be so thankful that we're still able to live on this planet and so that when I come back home, it's like, okay, good, I'm ready for work because I've, I've ran through my happy place and I remembered to be thankful and all powered to go again. Mm-hmm. Right on. That's some amazing advice. 
Well, thank you very much for that. I'm going to take that to heart. And uh, I have a request of you. We we have station IDs that we call them, so I'd like to get you to, to do one for us. I'll share one with you here as an example to hear what they sound like. Sure. So just a moment. This is Arthur Manuel. You are listening to 91.1 New Hulk Radio, broadcasting from sovereign New Hulk territory. If we could get your version of something along that, that would be super. Sure. So it was 99 point what? 91.1. Oh. <laughs> so I was so happy to hear Arthur's voice that I was like, what? Okay, I'm not even paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is Pam Palmiter, and you're listening to 91.1 Newhawk Radio from Sovereign Newhawk Territory. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I know I didn't, I didn't pronounce that as, as good as you did. But. <laughs> We're all learning. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, and I just want to ask if you have any, any final messages you'd like to send out to anyone listening out there. Just, um, you know... Remember that we, we need everybody. Even if you feel like you don't know what your purpose is, even if you don't know how you can contribute, even if you can't contribute right now, we need every single one of you as part of our nations to be warriors and defenders and life givers and protectors and leaders in our nations. And if you can't do that right now, we will be the ones to do it for you. And in the future, you can return that by doing it for other generations if they have any struggles. Beautiful. Well, thank you again very much for spending your time here with us. You are such a busy and amazing leader. I view you as a mentor. I do my best to surround myself with those I can learn from, and you most definitely fall into that category. And it's been an honor and a privilege to spend time with you here on New Hulk Radio, so thank you. Thank you so much. You honor me with your words, and I'm so honored to be a part of this. Why? Thank you. Bye-bye. I really hope you enjoyed this interview about the Whose Land Is It Anyway book and audio book and the extended discussion we had about all of the issues that are covered within my chapter and in the book generally. Thanks to the Federation of Post-Secondary Educators for publishing this free book in Art Manual's honor. I deeply respected Art and learned a lot from him, especially in his international advocacy. His writings and his teachings have inspired and educated and empowered Native activists all over Turtle Island, north and south of the border. Thank you also to everyone at Nooksalk Radio for taking the time to talk with some of the authors and go deeper into the issues of racism, colonization, genocide, and also the strength in Native resistance and resurgence. It was an incredible honor to be a part of this book, and I hope that all the Warrior Life podcast listeners check it out if you haven't already. It's already available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And like I said earlier, I'll post links in the description box. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also check it out from my website at www.pampalmeter.com where you can access all of my podcasts, my YouTube videos, my Indigenous Nationhood blog, 
all of my publications and more resources, including my new Warrior Kids podcast. For all of you out there with little warrior kids, in our podcast, we bring together Indigenous and non-Indigenous kids to celebrate everything Indigenous and to learn how to be social justice and earth justice warriors to help make the world a better place. I'm also really excited to promote my new book, Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence, which is being published by Fernwood Publishing. It's a collection of some of my best blogs and magazine op-eds, newspaper articles, speeches, everything related to issues that we are facing as Native peoples and as sovereign nations all over Turtle Island. If you use the code WARRIOR10, you can get a 10% discount when you pre-order the book. Thanks as always for your support and all of the actions that you all continue to do to push for change. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliyah.